Well, if you've, if you've ever driven in far west Texas or Arizona, New Mexico, something like that, in one of these far uh, open places that is prone to thunderstorms, pop-up thunderstorms, uh, you, you've seen this. We've, we are ever, ever so often are out in far west Texas for a camp that Brooks' family is involved in, and it's very normal in the summer months to have these kind of pop-up thunderstorms, big thunderheads that you see. And so if you're in the middle of one of those summer storms, uh, it can be pretty intense. You have this torrential rain and thunder and lightning and flash flooding as it often happens in these in this kind of localized way. It can seem unrelenting. It can seem very threatening. But what's interesting is you can be driving along these highways and you can be five or ten miles or more away from one of these these uh, storms, and 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 yet you can see the sky, the whole sky from horizon to horizon, most of which is blue and and sunny and clear, and so but you see that storm off in the distance, and and it doesn't seem so scary, it doesn't seem so threatening when you're outside of it, and you can tell it's not going to last too long for them. It's it's moving along. But we only get that perspective from seeing the storm from the outside. If you're in it, you don't, you don't understand that. You don't see that. But, well, this letter that we're in, we've been studying our way through First Peter in chapter 2 now. And in this letter, it's written by Peter under the Holy Spirit's inspiration to Christians who were in the middle of this intensifying storm of suffering. And he wants to help them see it from the outside. This is what we're seeing today. So when you think of suffering in the early church, we tend to think of things like Colosseums and Christians being fed to wild animals and, or being used as torches in Nero's Rome and so this widespread martyrdom and, and, and imprisonment. And that kind of persecution did happen, but it wasn't common here, at least Peter's audience, yet. It was coming, but it wasn't quite there yet. They could probably see these things brewing but this wasn't their present experience at this time. But what they, what they are experiencing is a torrential downpour of kind of social ostracism, uh, intense social ostracism on account of their faith in Christ and their identification with, with Him. And so they, they, they're facing the bitter and costly reality of a loss of social standing in the community, a loss of reputation, and, and, and that was very significant in, in this community-oriented, shame-based culture. And so that's, I don't think, oh, it wasn't that bad. No, it was, it was, it was very costly. Let me just listen to one commentator, Karen Job. She has a very helpful commentary on First Peter that I've, I'm turning to every week. But she writes this, kind of describing the setting. Peter's readers were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean discredit and shame the believers as social and moral deviants, endangering the common good. The procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community, Christians, to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. You see any connections to our own day? Well, this pressure on, on Peter's readers, wasn't it, it wasn't just vague or general, it was very concrete. It was in the particulars of real life. And so, just think of what this was like for them. They lived under the, the constant uh, 
pressure of political rulers who, who were increasingly skeptical about this, quote, phenomenon of Christianity and wondering whether they should even tolerate it. And so there, there was this threatening uh, posturing towards Christianity from the, from the rulers of the day. Some of these believers are wives who have unbelieving husbands and, the, and, they, and their husbands are growing tired, maybe even resentful of the fact that the, the wives won't participate in idol worship with the family. Some are slaves of unbelieving masters and they're wondering how they can possibly obey their masters in, in doing some activity that, that does not honor their true Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. So, so it, was, it was real life. Not just a vague sense of opposition. So Christians are increasingly being viewed as antisocial and even dangerous to society. Just look in, in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Uh, Peter talks about the, the world around them, the Gentiles. They're living in sensuality, uh, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And listen to verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised... When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and what? And they malign you. It just gives you a sense of what life was like for Peter's readers. And so it's under this incredible increasing pressure that these what ifs start, start for them. What if the civil authorities get more violent? What if my husband will no longer tolerate my Christian faith and he kicks me out? What if... What, what kind of recourse do I have against a cruel, unbelieving master as a Christian slave? And so thoughts of poverty and increasing, uh, like, complete destitution type of poverty. poverty and, and, and increasing social alienation and abandonment. Those, those thoughts begin to preoccupy the minds of these early Christians. And they're in the, and they're, they're in the middle of this downpour, of this, of this storm. And it seems certain that the storm is only getting worse for them and shows no signs whatsoever of letting up. So that's, that's the situation. And, and as I alluded to earlier, in many ways, Peter's, the, the situation of Peter re, Peter's readers, it has parallels to our own situation. It's part of the reason we're in First Peter. I'm not at all suggesting that the public shaming that they were enduring is the same as we experience in this country at this day and time. But I, but I will say that there is an in, increasing intensity and acceptability and kind of blatant nature of shame that's directed towards Christians in our day. And certainly for most Christians in the world, it is very blatant and very threatening, even physical harm and persecution of Christians, martyrdom. But, but there's, it, it's, it's here. But maybe you are married to an unbeliever. Or you're part, of, um, you're part of an unbelieving family. And there's resentment and anger towards you because of your faith in Christ. Maybe, maybe your neighbors ignore you or shun you. Or, or have said to you or to others about you that your commitment to Christ is, is just stupid. Maybe at work you're expected to bend the rules to make the company more money or to, to kind of engage in the gossip and the grumbling in the workplace. And, and what if you don't participate? So, so and, and all of us, 
If those don't describe you, um, all of us live under a kind of this constant barrage of influence from the media and the wider culture that's telling us that believing in Jesus is a joke. It's, it's, it's a waste of time. It's even dangerous to society at large. We hear this more and more. So together, all these increasingly loud and forceful, more forceful messages, they can function to shame Christians. And so we're in a storm, and it seems to be worsening. The threatening things we hear, see, experience, they can begin to shake us. And we can think that this is just the way it is, the way it always will be. And we can be tempted either, one, to despair, or we can just kind of take the path of least resistance and, and just concede. And so Peter writes to these storm-battered believers from the perspective of one who's, who's seeing things from outside the storm. Not that Peter is outside the storm and just enjoying a bright sunny day, but he's, it's like he's seeing it from a distance, seeing it in perspective. And so he reminds them, he reminds us of ultimate reality. Of the bigger picture, it it seems like, and and you can experience this in whatever kind of trial, it seems like when you're in the midst of suffering and trials, it's like that's all you see. It's right here. This is all there is in your life, and you become identified by it. And and this is is all that's real, is this difficulty I'm facing. And this is how these believers were feeling. And so Peter says to them, and he writes to them, and he doesn't say, no, that's not real. No, he says, that is real. That's difficult. But there, there is more happening. Angry sinners, violent sinners, threatening sinners aren't the only ones at work. God is at work. He is doing something and the, and the Almighty's plans will not be thwarted by the actions of some sinful creatures. It's not going to happen. And so, this is where we find ourselves in these verses. And so, I'm, I, this is a long introduction, I grant that. And, and I, I, but I, I'm, I've been wrestling, what is this, how does this connect? Even in the immediate context of what we looked at last week. Long for the pure milk of the word. And, and this is the connection, I think. So, last week we saw this long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, since you've tasted of the Lord's goodness. And so can we really be certain that, and and Peter's assuming the context here, can we be certain that in this hostile world, when we're so opposed and so shamed by everybody around us, can we be certain that together we can grow and be nourished by the Lord through His Word? Can Can we really grow up with so much opposition, so much opposition, it seems hopeless. And so how can we stand firm in the grace of God and grow in it, which is what Peter's calling us to, in a world that just shames us? And here's part of his answer. Just in that context, read verse 4 again. As you come to Him, to Jesus, the, the longing for pure spiritual milk, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what he's doing is he's pulling his readers out of the clouds, out of the middle of the storm, giving them a a perspective on ultimate things. 
And what's really happening, to see their present circumstances in light of these, this bigger picture, the bigger redemptive work that God is doing. That's what, he's, that's what I think he's doing here. And he doesn't just point them and, and us to an idea or a thought that would be really helpful to them. What does he do? He points them to Jesus. As you come to him, it's this living stone. It's Jesus that you need to draw near to. It's Jesus, it's not just a new perspective, it's a person that you need to be drawn to. To Christ. So how, how we relate to this stone, Jesus, it changes everything for us. And so this is, this is what his burden is. Alright, one more thing before we jump into the outline. Don't worry, we'll make it. We're going to see three Old Testament passages that Peter references in this, in this text. In verse 6, he, he quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, and verse 7, Psalm 118, verse 22, verse 8, Isaiah 8.14. So it's like Peter scouring his Old Testament, kind of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but looking in his concordance, stone, stone, rock, and, and, and seeing what connects to Jesus. Now why, why does he do that? Because it's what Peter's heard from Jesus himself. If you remember in Matthew 21, you can turn there if you want, Matthew 21 and verse 33 and following, there's the parable of the tenants. And So I'll just summarize the parable. But the, the parable of this master is a story that Jesus tells to teach a point. And so this master plants a vineyard, leases it to these tenants. And so when it's harvest season, the master sends his servants to kind of collect his portion of the fruit. And then when the, when the servants go and do this, the, the text says that, that the tenants, they beat one servant, killed another, and stoned another. It's rough, rough tenants. And he sends more servants, thinking, okay, a larger group. Well, they do the same to them. And so he figures, I'll send my own son. And the text says that they will, they will surely respect my son. So they're not going to hurt my son. That would be the most foolish mistake they can make. And, but what do they do? They kill the son thinking that they can somehow take his inheritance. And so it's in this context of this story, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, the passage that's the second Old Testament quote in our passage today. Verse 42 of Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so Peter learned from Jesus that Jesus himself is the stone of Psalm 118. And it's, and it's all the Lord's doing. The Lord sent Jesus, intending for him to be rejected, to, to die for sins, to rise again, to be this cornerstone. And so as Peter writes, under the Spirit's inspiration, to, to encourage these alienated, scattered, shamed, rejected Christians, this imagery of the rejected stone comes to mind. And he's saying, that's Jesus. And that's us in him. So that's, that's, I think that's what we have here. So, all right. So we're going to see this living stone, this cornerstone, this stumbling stone. That'll kind of be our three, three movements through here. So the first thing we'll say is this, is Jesus is the living stone who imparts life to those connected to him. He's the living stone who imparts life to those connected to him. And so look at, again in verse, verse four. As you come to him, or maybe your translation says coming to him. It's a 
Present tense participle. Just continuous action. It's not the one time come to Jesus kind of moment where of conversion. But it's this continual, habitual, ongoing, uh, present tense coming to Jesus. As you come near to Christ over and over again. And it's not just that we come alone. It's, it's, it's a plural uh, uh, participle here. So he's, it's, not, it's not, and this is how we often think. We talked about this last week. We, we so often we get into passages like this and we, and we think because of our individualistic kind of Western culture, we think Jesus and me. So as I come to Jesus. No, it says, as we brothers and sisters, as we come to Him again and again and again together. This is to be our life, church. This is what we do. We, we come, we're coming to Jesus to be built up together as a spiritual house. And so as we come to Him, this, over and over, this living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So stop there. So Peter, the image is, and it, it kind of changes throughout this passage, but it's all in that realm of building and, and construction and stones and rocks and stuff. So, but Peter pictures this stone and this imaginary uh, rock quarry. And so in this quarry, there, there are two building contractors who are looking for materials. And so the first contractor in this image is, is fallen humanity. And so he, 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 we, he comes upon the stone he finds it unimpressive, flawed. He, he rejects it and leaves it there, pursues his building project with other materials. So that's the first contractor. And then there's a second contractor who comes, and this is God himself. And, he, and, and to the eternal shock and horror of the first contractor of fallen humanity, God takes the very stone that humanity rejected and he begins this whole building project with it. And so the stone which is rejected and shamed by men is in fact God's chosen and precious stone. And it's from this one living stone that God, God will take the rubble of all of his fallen creation and, and construct this spiritual house. And so this is, again, why is Peter saying this? What, this is a, there's, a, there's a point that he's making. This is how Peter wants us to understand our difficult circumstances. In the context of these two competing building projects. That the rejection and the shame heaped upon us by the world actually indicates to which building we belong. And so as elect exiles, as Christians, we've been claimed for God's project. And that's evidenced by the fact that we receive the same rejection that our Lord does. All right, we'll come back to that. But so, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So as part of God's building project, our, our identity is fundamentally determined by Christ. Jesus is the living stone, and by our connection to Him, we are like living stones. We're united to Him in His resurrection life. We get our life from Him. Now, I realize that's a strange image, living stones. It's, it's kind of oxymoronic, like an efficient bureaucracy or something like that. But stones aren't normally alive. But for this image, we are alive because of our connection to Jesus. That's important. That's a strong point Peter's making here. And our function as living stones is to be part of Christ's 
construction, temple construction. We're being built up to form this spiritual house. And again, remember Peter's writing, saw this in the very first verse of this, uh, of this letter. He's writing to these Christians who are scattered across these five named provinces. And so these people are scattered around and alienated from one another. But he says to them, God is forming one spiritual house with all of you. He's, he's doing it. So, again, what it, what, I want to keep coming back to what this is about, why this is here. Brothers and sisters, you are not the sum total of your experiences, good or bad. That's not who you are, ultimately. If you are in Christ, you are not simply your looks or your IQ or your social status or the way you dress or your reputation or your health, good or bad. You're not your history, your circumstances, your failures, your successes. That's, that's, not, that's not your identity. If you're in Christ, you become, you become part of something very big and very sacred. The moment you believe in Him, you are part of God's spiritual household. You are a living stone who is in union with the living stone... And you are being built by God into this spiritual house. That is reality, brothers and sisters. That's truth. That's who you are. But he goes on. That's not all. Peter, Peter he mixes metaphors here and kind of changes metaphors. And he says more about who we are by virtue of our union in Christ. He says we're build, being built up to be a holy priesthood. We're going to talk a little more about this next week. But every believer is a priest unto God. This is one of the clearest statements on the priesthood of all believers in scripture and so but but in calling us priests in in this context he's saying something about both our identity and our function and so it's this this incredible privilege that we are priests of god but it also is a sacred responsibility and the, the priest's primary function is to lead in in the worship of god in this case the new priesthood this this involves offering of spiritual sacrifices that's what the text says we offer these spiritual sacrifices. So what are these spiritual sacrifices? And now I know, they're, they're, I, in looking at commentators and, and listening to some sermons on this, people get all get, get tied up in knots over what these sacrifices are. And, and, and there are places in Scripture where there are, you know, our, our praises, our sacrifices to Jesus, our good works, or uh, giving, or uh, our bodies, our, Romans 12, that kind of sense. And so I don't think that the point is we've got to figure out what the 7 or 12 or 15 spiritual sacrifices we must offer to God as priests. I don't think that's the point. We're not told what they are in, in particular. I, you just take the immediate context. I think you can gather what this looks like. But I would say the sum of it is simply worship and obedience. And it touches on all aspects of life. But again, in context, instead of, like we saw last week, instead of malice, love. Instead of deceit, truth. Instead of hypocrisy, sincerity, authenticity. Instead of, instead of envy, there be joy and gratitude for the good in one another's lives. Instead of slander, encouragement. It's being holy as God is holy. It's, it's bearing witness, as we'll see next week, to God's excellencies, uh, both to one another and to the world. And so, this is all part of our spiritual sacrifices. And so, so you hear about our identity, our function as priests in this, in this spiritual house. And the question is, how are we doing with these spiritual sacrifices? How are we doing with those? 
Can you give yourselves a grade on these? A grade on love. A grade on holiness. On witness. On sincerity. Maybe it's a C- minus today. It's going back to before the message. Maybe this is how you feel. Maybe a, maybe a D. But I may be failing. Or, But I remember, I was a solid B a month ago. I can't even remember being an A once. A minus, but it was an A. Listen, that is not the point. The point is, is not what we, that, that, that we have within ourselves what it takes to be good priests and to offer spiritual sacrifices that God's going to be really happy with us for. That is not the point. Our job is not to just get better at being priests before God. None of us are good enough for a God who is holy. And demands absolute perfection. The bar is way too high for us to do this on ourselves. The only reason our lives, the only reason our spiritual sacrifices count is that they are acceptable to God. Look at the text. Through Jesus Christ. Amen? So we continually come as you come over and over and you draw near to this living stone who died for us and who covers all the inadequacies of our, of our impurities of our faith and our, our, our acts of obedience and our praises that are so inadequate. We come to Him as we come to Him so that they are indeed acceptable through Him. It's Jesus. You can please God by offering spiritual sacrifices because... We do so through Jesus, by virtue of our union with Him. That's how we do it. So why is, why is Peter focusing on this? This incredible depiction of their transformed identity in Christ, jam-packed with these powerful images that he doesn't want us to miss a picture. Again, what is he doing? He's pulling them, he's pulling us out of the storm clouds, setting us ten miles away on a hillside and saying, Seeing what's ultimate. Seeing the bigger picture. What you're facing now is not the ultimate reality. From our perspective, things can seem very scary, can seem very confusing and unsettling and uncertain and troubling and seem like they're just going to last forever. Peter is reminding us against the backdrop of God's wide open, grand, beautiful, eternal, guaranteed plan that we have hope. We have hope. It's like someone who can't swim, he falls, off of, uh, falls out of a boat in the kind of midst of a pond or lake or something like that, and he's thrashing around in the murky water and, and frightened and expecting that he's going to drown. And, then so, and it's like Peter's yelling from the, from the shoreline, Stand up! And you put your feet down and you realize, oh, it's not that deep. This is, this is, this is what we have. And, and we, we, we can touch the Peter saying through these currents of rejection and that are swirling around you and all this opposition and all this rage that's directed against you, there's something solid underneath you. You're not being swept away. Ultimately, we are in Christ, the living stone. We are you connected to Him and His life is in us and that will not change. And so we are being built into the spiritual house, what could possibly be more ultimate than that? So, that's a big, long point, and 
I, but but we after this is foundational, and so after stating this foundational reality for these suffering Christians, he in verse five he's going to show with these Old Testament or or, or, or in verses six and following here he's going to show with these Old Testament references that there are only two ways then to respond to Jesus. Two di- and both of these ways of responding to him carry two dis- distinct outcomes. So there are, there are two ways of responding to the stone. Jesus Christ. There are those who believe in Jesus Christ. And you see this with this pronoun that's repeated. You. Verse 5, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10. Again, he's writing to believers. And so he's saying you, you, you. And then there are those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And he uses this pronoun those or they in verses 7 and 8. So everything centers on, everything hinges on Jesus Christ and how we're related to him. So that's the second Second aspect of Jesus as a stone. Jesus is the cornerstone who is precious to those who trust in him. He's the cornerstone who is precious to those who trust in him. Verse 6. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. So Peter reminds us that God is always intended to lay this Christ stone as the cornerstone of his glorious spiritual house. And so this was prophesied long ago by the prophet Isaiah. This is why he's looking to the Old Testament. So the, the passage in Isaiah comes deep in, in, in this, the heart of the Lord's condemnation of Ephraim. And so it's in that context that this promise comes, of, uh, this promise is there of this coming stone in Zion. So you can, again, you can see why this context would, would connect so well with Peter's readers. And, and so he's talking to people who are suffering for their faith. Things seem to be spiraling out of control. You get into the second letter that Peter writes here in, 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 in chapter 3 of Second Peter. He talks about scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, they're saying, Christ isn't coming back. You guys are crazy. Everything everything will always be as it is now. You you people have hitched your wagon to the wrong horse. This is you're going nowhere. But the real payoff for Peter's readers and for us, it, it comes in that last clause of Isaiah twenty eight, sixteen. And whoever believes in him as we can see, Jesus will not be put to shame. And that negative is very strong, very emphatic. You can say, you will never be put to shame, or certainly not ever be put to shame. And and then he draws the obvious conclusion at the beginning of verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. And so just as our identity is determined by Christ, we are living stones being built together in this spiritual house and we're a royal priesthood, so also God's evaluation of us is determined by Christ. So this connection, it can be a little bit obscured in in, uh, some of the English translations, including the ESV, what I'm looking at. The word translated precious in verses 4 and verse 6 it's actually related to, it's a cognate of the word translated honor in verse 7. And I think it's important to see that these words are related. So we could say that the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, is chosen and honorable. That would be a perfectly acceptable translation. He's worthy of honor. When God looks at Christ, when God evaluates Jesus, He declares Him worthy of honor. And in Christ, 
he says the same thing about us. <laughs> Not because of our inherent honor, but because we are in him. And so I just want you to ponder that for a moment. I've read, this, I've read these verses dozens, probably hundreds of times, and I don't think I've ever really noticed this, the force of this declaration. He's saying, you, those of you who believe, you who are scorned, rejected, shamed by your family, by your community, by your neighbors, by society at large, you will not be put to shame. God has given you honor. God has given you honor, not shame, in Christ Jesus. And it's from this this point of view, we can return to that initial question before we really got into the outline. Ask this, how can we stand firm in the grace of God and grow in that grace while we're in the midst of a world that's against us? What do we, what do, we do? We do exactly what Peter has done. We look to Christ. That's what we do. We look at God's evaluation of us in Him. And, and we encounter one of these kind of classic mind-benders in Scripture, and there's a bunch of them, things that just blow your mind. But, the, but the, this is what we see. The world's rejection of us for following Christ, for believing in Christ, actually points to God's acceptance of us in Christ. The world's rejection of us for our identification with Jesus actually is a sign of the fact that God has accepted us in Christ. Jesus said this in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as one of its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Again, the point isn't on the behavior of the people. The point is in the fact of what Jesus has done. He says, I've made you my own. I've, I've chosen you out of the world. And so, why would you expect anything else? So the challenge for us is a real one. It's the challenge to listen to God's evaluation instead of the world's evaluation of our condition. That's a major challenge because the world's evaluation is everywhere. And it's visible and it's audible and it's on social media. We see it all over the place. And God's evaluation is only accessible to us by faith. And so this, is, this challenge is why I think Peter says, if, this is a few weeks ago now, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he, this is the very first command that he gives. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter, he's not pretending this is easy. Having unshakable hope in the face of a shaming world is not easy. But this is, this is what we're called to. So now we have to ask the tough question. At least what I think is a tough question. And as I've been thinking about this this week. The assumption throughout this passage is that we're actually experiencing some sort of, sort of shame because of our identification with Christ. That's kind of assumed here. It was certainly the case with Peter's readers. And... So we have to ask ourselves, if we are trying to escape the shame of our society by downplaying our identification with Jesus. Let me give you a little example of 
shaming and compromise that we may or that we might experience. Not a not a big major one, but just a normal one. Maybe someone just simply expresses disbelief at your faith in Christ. I don't mean because of the way you act. How could you be a Christian? That's not what I mean. But it's more, you're a Christian? Really? You're one of those? Now, if you're anything like me, I get a little rattled by statements like that. My mind starts racing. This person doesn't think I'm normal. I'm normal. <laughs> I have a few quirks, mind you, but I'm, I'm relatively normal. I don't think I'm weird. This person... Maybe they think less of me and I want them to like me. Or then I maybe get angry and I think, how dare they question my personal beliefs? So, so as our minds are racing with these kind of conflicting thoughts, suddenly some, something suddenly kind of pops out of our mouths in moments like this perhaps. And maybe, maybe we say something like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but we kind of, it's not a big deal. Or a version of that. Or maybe we say, yeah, yeah, but I'm not one of those types of Christians. Now, I realize that qualification may be very helpful in certain contexts, and depending on what they're comparing to. But, but typically, my thoughts in moments like that are not about the glory of Christ and the, the eternal good of this person's soul. My thoughts are typically, I want this person to think well of me. I want this person to think I'm not a moron. I want this person to think I'm normal. And in some way, that desire is perfectly natural and normal. We are made in God's image to, to create it for community. And so this is why shaming actually works for people. But, but, but what I think we actually want in that moment more than anything else, if we're honest, I want, to, that, I want this person to see me as more than my identification with Christ. I don't deny being a Christian, but I want them to see more than Jesus in me. Sure, I'm a Christian, but I'm also smart. I, I read interesting and intelligent books and articles. and I like good music. I watch sports. and I'm not stuffy or stiff or something like that. So we, so we want to we wanna do that. And, so, and the undercurrent of all this is, like me. Please, please, please like me. For, for me. Listen, I'm not, I hope that you're not hearing me mocking you. I'm talking to myself here as I've been wrestling with this, this week. I, but I want people to see me as more than my identification with Christ. I want to avoid shame by being more identified with those things that the world honors. That's what it comes down to. I want to add all these qualifiers. I, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm a cool Christian, or whatever. That's See, I'm already saying I'm not cool, but whatever the word is now. I'm a tolerant Christian. I'm a smart Christian. I'm a successful Christian. I'm an athletic Christian. I'm a wealthy Christian. I'm a poor Christian, depending on who you're talking to and what they think is better. Anything that will turn people's attention away from Christ alone, and towards something that the world honors. Now there's the problem. There's the rub. According to Peter, apart from our identification with Christ, we're not much of anything at all. There's nothing else. And so, 
Listen, I have no desire to lay some kind of impossible guilt trip on you today. That's not my point. My point is not toughen up, you know, quit being a wimp, be, be stronger, be better. That's not it. I hope you are feeling the conviction that I've been feeling this week as I've been wrestling through this text. And my hope is that we are more and more inconspicuously committed to Christ, unashamed of the gospel, as Paul says. I hope that's the case for us as a church. But how do you say and live with any real honestly, I am not ashamed of the gospel? How do you do that honestly? I think Peter gives us the answer here. We can only do that. We can only really live like that once we come to the conviction that we are not ashamed by the gospel. I know I'm prepositions here. You may be missing the point. But listen, what I mean is, according to Peter, the way we stand strong in the midst of the world that is shaming us is not by drawing on our own resources and toughening ourselves up. That's not it. It begins with the understanding that our shame has been removed in Christ. That's it. Whoever believes in Jesus will not ever, never, not ever be put to shame. And so in Christ, God's evaluation is that we are worthy of honor, not shame. Therefore, the world's evaluation must begin to fall in importance. We we need not be ashamed. But what about those who have rejected Christ and therefore His people? And this is where we're going to the last point, quickly. Peter turns again to the Old Testament to answer that question. End of verse 7. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. All right, we'll come back to that. So the last thing I would say is this. Jesus is the stumbling stone who is an obstacle to those who reject Him. In the final analysis, those who reject Christ find themselves on the wrong side of history. By rejecting Jesus, they, 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 are, they have been rejected by God and have found themselves to be God's enemies. And so God's verdict about them has come in and the verdict is ultimate shame and destruction. That's what we see in this passage. And so the very people who've called believers shameful for their faith in and identification with Christ now find themselves guilty of, of ultimate, eternal shame. They have been wrong all along about who is truly worthy of honor and who is truly worthy of shame. They have completely missed it. Their evaluations have no eternal weight of merit. They, they, uh, they have fallen short. And the very stone which is a source of salvation for those who believe becomes a stone of destruction for those who reject Him. And so Peter pictures the Lord as both salvation and judgment here. And and, and that's exactly what Isaiah does in the passage that Peter quotes in this last quote. And it's from Isaiah chapter 8. And it's verse 14. But let me read in the context. Isaiah 8 verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be for your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. So he's both sanctuary, 
and cause stumbling. Why do they, the question, why do they fall to their destruction? And it's this last phrase. They stumble because they disobey the word, which is another expression of they, the, the, the word in the context is the gospel. And what is, how do we disobey the gospel? We've talked about what it means to obey the gospel. It's believing. So to disobey the word is to, is to not believe in the gospel, not to trust in Christ, to reject the stone. They disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, it's 1043 on the back wall. And this is one of those things that's terrifying for a preacher when you get to this plate in your sermon and a verse like this. Um, because if you're, if you're frightened by the already that I've been speaking for quite a while and you've and you know, you got picnic and, and potluck and kickball and whatever on the brain coming up here, um, you, the, now you're worried that I've got a 20-minute rant down here on the matter of election and one of these. I'm not going to do that, and you can be thankful, I, I hope. But this is a very controversial statement. It's a strong statement um, of God's sovereignty in, in, in this realm. And I, I need to say a few things about this verse. So let me, let me just, I'm going to try to, con, I've got some statements and I'm going to basically read these and give you clarify. You won't be able to write all these down, so I'm sorry. First, I really don't think you can get around the fact that God has, before the foundation of the world, graciously chosen in Christ some to be saved from his wrath. And that by default he's chosen to pass over others and punish them for their sin. I don't think you can get around that. At least some version of that and be honest with what the Bible teaches. Second, Scripture doesn't teach us this truth in order to satisfy all of our curiosities. It's not why this is recorded. This is not why believers are told this. God's, God tells believers about His electing purposes so that we might be encouraged in our salvation, assured of it, and, and humbled by His grace. This is why we're told these things. This is why God communicates us to about, about election. It's not so that we have something to argue and debate over. It's not it. But, but so that we can be encouraged, take comfort in God's saving purposes, and again, be humbled by His grace. Third, neither in this passage nor anywhere else in Scripture are God's sovereignty and man's responsibility set in opposition. So why do they stumble? Because they disobey the Word. How do they, how do they disobey the Word? By not believing, trusting in Christ. So they stumble because they disobey the Gospel. And at the very least, we see that God has appointed the penalty for that disobeying of the Gospel is to suffer God's eternal wrath. To stumble. And so this is a great mystery, but it is not a contradiction. We see this in other places in Scripture, and we don't have time to go there. But Acts 4, 27 and 28, remember the, all the, you, you, you crucified Him, but it was all according to the predetermined plan of God. It was, men were responsible for their sinful actions in crucifying Jesus, but God, it all fit within God's eternal plan. And we saw this in, in the parable of the tenants, Matthew twenty one forty two, uh, that the, the stone was rejected. And what, is, what does Jesus say? This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our sight. So there's no there's mystery, but not contradiction. So those who have rejected God as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ are responsible and bear their own guilt. 
And the consequences of that are eternal suffering and shame. And then lastly, God sovereignly rules over sin and sinners, yet he himself does not sin. There are no people who are not morally responsible for their unbelief. There's nobody trying to get to Jesus that he turns away and wants to believe in him, but they can't. Not, not a possibility. There are no persons whose judgment will be unjust. And all, all of us were hopelessly sinful. None of us deserves to be saved. So, so that's the reality. So and listen, this passage isn't meant to distract us and to cause us you know, heartburn before we go eat a big meal and then you know, play volleyball on that meal. The, pos- the passage is meant to encourage us. Take heart. Suffering exiles. None of your enemies can thwart the Almighty's plans. This is the point. Every, every man, and this is the other, every man and woman and child will confront Christ and find Him either to be that sanctuary or to be a rock of stumbling. One commentator said, Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter with Him, each person is changed. One for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go about on the daily routine and pass Him by to build another future. Whoever encounters Him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin, falling short of one's Creator and Redeemer and thereby one's destiny. Those are the only two options. Only two. But for those who may have stumbled over Christ in the past and maybe came in here today stumbling over Him, and to you He is a stumbling block and a rock of offense, I'd like to encourage you today that you have not yet fallen ultimately into eternal suffering and shame. And that's God's grace. If you've stumbled in Christ over, over Christ in the past, there is still hope. The, the ultimate that this passage tells us about has not yet finally been revealed. It has been inaugurated to be sure through Christ, but it's not fully revealed. So there is still hope for you. And I would encourage you today that you would come to Jesus for the first time and see Him as the living and life-giving stone that He is. And and come to Him and trust in Him today. And if you want to understand more more what that means, talk to one of us. Talk to one of those friendly faces or blue lanyard folks or me or anybody around you today. We'd love to share more. But for all of us who have already believed, who've come to Christ by faith, who've been born again by the living word of God, take courage. And as you go out into a world that has rejected your Lord and therefore will reject you, um, we do not have to be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because we are unashamed by the gospel. Listen, dear Baraka family, if, you've, if you're confused by all that's been said up to this point, that's not necessarily your fault. That could be the preacher's fault. And that's okay. But listen to this. And if your mind's been on pound cake and whatever else is coming, just listen to this, this encouragement. We must keep Christ central in every 
everything we do. This is the summary of all that Peter is saying to these readers, not just in this section, but in this letter. No matter what kind of storms come into your life individually, into our life as a church family, our response needs to be continually coming to Christ together. We go to Him. We, we long together for pure spiritual milk from Him. We come to Him to be built up by Him. We come to Him to grow in salvation. Hope is in Him. We offer spiritual sacrifices through Him. Every, everything sinners, to, com, sinners on comes to Jesus. And if that's not what we're about, then our priorities, priorities will be all wrong. We, 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 if that's not what we're doing, we're building our own work on very soft sand. But as we come near to Jesus together, abiding in Him, making it our aim, as Paul says, to know Him and the power of His resurrection as we, as we make that our aim, then the Lord will keep building us into a spiritual house made up of living stones that are in union with Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we so easily um, take our eyes off of Your Son. And we can get so distracted by not necessarily bad or moral things, but good things even, in, in the activity of a local church and, and the, the, all that's going on. And, and, but if we're not drawing near to you through those things, Father, then they're really meaningless. And so I pray that as a church, whatever storms that you lead us through, God, whatever kind of opposition we face, individually or, or together, that our response will be, to see our identity in in you as you've as you that we'll see your evaluation being more important than anybody else's evaluation and that we will continually come to you Jesus we pray in, in Christ's name amen